Good morning. Well, Egypt was a wonderful place to visit, but also, a lot like the Hebrews, it was a great place to leave. <laughs> Got to go to the Cairo Museum while we were there. My cameraman and I went to um, the Cairo Museum, and it was marvelous. There we are, standing there with uh, two of our new friends. One of the great things about the Cairo Museum was seeing some of the mummies that were there from the time of uh, Moses. They have in the Hall of Mummies, they have a, uh, a glass in, encased in glass about 10 mummies, basically pharaohs, from various, you know, from the New, the new Kingdom period, they call it. And this uh, guy you're looking at, I'll just let you gaze at him for a second. Handsome man, isn't he? Well, he's 3,464 years old. That's a long time. Okay, enough of that. We've got lunch coming, so take him off. But I mention him because I'd like, uh, I'd like to talk about these pharaohs, in particular as we get started. Um, in 1 Kings chapter 6, I know we're headed to Exodus, but let's look at 1 Kings chapter 6 first. One of the reasons that I wanted to go see these mummies is not just to gawp at, at uh, mummies, but to because these were the individuals that stood face to face and with the, in, with the mummy that we just saw, toe to toe to Moses. 1 Kings chapter 6 is important. It's one of the, the most important dates for us in biblical chronology that helps us date the Exodus better than any other part of the Bible. 1 Kings 6 says this, It came about on the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now, it's an important verse because we know Solomon, we can date Solomon's rule very accurately. Solomon ruled from 971 to 931 B.C. And the fourth year of his reign would have been 966 B.C. And so according to this verse, if you back up 480 years from Solomon's fourth year, you get 1446 B.C., which was the date of the Exodus. Uh, some liberal scholars in Hollywood, for sure, aren't going to tell us that this is the right date, and they try to point to archaeology as the defining um, reason that this date doesn't work, but it does work, even with archaeology, which is a, a huge sidebar. But if the Word of God's the Word of God, then there it is. 1446 is the date of the Exodus. And if that's the date of the Exodus, and it is, then we know what pharaohs were alive and well at that time, and the ones that, that interacted with Moses. And I'll mention just a few of them. First of all, you're probably familiar with the name Hatshepsut. She was actually one of the few female, she was obviously a pharaoh, and the, the story behind her rise to power is, uh, is very interesting. But what is most interesting about her is she was the daughter of the I, and as such, she was likely the daughter of Pharaoh that found Moses in the Nile. And there in the Hall of Mummies, there she was laying there. 
And so I, you know, they, they file us through, and you're supposed to keep things moving. So I went through a, a couple of times so that I could sit there and look. But I looked at the, the mummy of this pharaoh or this woman, and she, they had only the faces and the hands exposed and sometimes the feet sticking out. There. Everything else was covered up. But I, as I looked at her face, I think, those lips kissed Moses, baby Moses. And her hands were there. Those hands held baby Moses. I mean, it's one thing to go to the Bible lands and to go to the places that, you know, the great heroes of the faith have been. But to look in the faces of people, that was amazing. It was sort of like standing in, in, a, in a surreal time, time tunnel. Uh, Hatshepsut's stepson, Tutmose III, was the pharaoh that chased Moses out of Egypt after Moses killed the Egyptian. And then the pharaoh that we just saw was Amenhotep II. Amenhotep II was the pharaoh of the Exodus. He, the, the, the mummy that, that you saw the picture of was the one that stood toe-to-toe to Moses and said, why should I let you know, the Hebrews go? Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? And it was just, again, so surreal to look in the face of this, of this individual who looked into the face of Moses 3,464 years ago. Well, let's look at Exodus chapter 12 at the details of what was undoubtedly the most important event in the Old Testament. For us, when we think about the most important event that occurred in history, we point to Easter weekend, the death and resurrection of Jesus. No doubt. In fact, all of history turns on it from B.C. to A.D. around the life of Christ and ultimately Jesus' death and resurrection. But from a Hebrew perspective, or prior to that, the most important event in the Old Testament was the Exodus. And we're going to look at, uh, starting in verse 12, obviously we can't go through the whole book, but in our series, we're not trying to do that. We're just taking a single message from each of the 66 books of the Bible. Exodus is a Greek word that means going forth. We get our word, obviously, exit from it. And uh, as we saw last week with Genesis, God's desire to bless his creation. We saw that several times, blessed the animals. He blessed humanity. He blessed Noah, and then he blessed Abraham. In fact, he told Abraham would really be blessed. In fact, through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But, uh, and then at the end of Genesis, of course, Abraham's descendants, numbering 70 at that time, the family and the clan of Jacob, all went down to Egypt to escape a famine. And several centuries go by, and the book of Exodus rolls through, and we're told that there arose a pharaoh that didn't know Joseph, in the sense of, I don't know that it's so much that he didn't know him as much as that he, that he disregarded him. He disregarded or didn't know Joseph and enslaved the Hebrews. And the, uh, the land of safety and the land of incubation, which the Hebrews grew to be a great nation, became a land of slavery for them, just as God told Abraham that they, they would be. And so we won't 
we won't look at the first 11 chapters of this book, but obviously God calls Moses. Moses is born. God calls Moses to be the, the uh, reluctant, although he's reluctant. He calls him to be the deliverer of his people. And he comes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And through a series of plagues, one by one, God begins to pull the slats out of the Egyptian bed, as it were, until finally the, the last plague in chapter 11 is the, the death of the firstborn. And now chapter 12 is the wonderful uh, remedy to that so that the Hebrews are not affected. Exodus 12, let's look at, again, the most important event in the Old Testament, and that is this exit or the exodus from Egypt. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one, according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished lamb, a male, unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So these verses talk about this lamb. We refer to it often as the Passover lamb. It was the lamb at this Passover feast that they are told to, uh, to enjoy or to partake in. And it's a one-year-old lamb. It's a perfect, unblemished lamb. And they are to take it on the 10th, and they're to keep it until the 14th. Now imagine, imagine that for just a moment. Imagine that you have this cute little lamb in your home for four or five days, and then you kill it. There was something important about those four days of it being in your house. You, were, you would develop a natural affection for this cute little animal, especially your kids or grandkids would. And therefore, its death would be a powerful metaphor for sin. You killed this cute little lamb that you had as a pet, as it were, for five days, and then you would eat it. Moreover, you would take the blood of this lamb and you were to put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of your door, on both sides and on the header of the door. And then they entered through that blood into the house and then they ate the lamb. Look at verse, 11, uh, verse 8. Then they shall eat the flesh the same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn it with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Eat it in haste, with staff in hand, your loins girded. In other words, you are packed. You are ready to go. 
you are ready to travel because this final plague is going to do the job. Pharaoh is going to let you go at this point. And they were to eat it, we're told, with unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. Bread that had no, uh, no leaven in it. It had no opportunity yet to begin to ferment. And the bitter herbs traditionally were to call to mind the, the bitterness of their slavery. So everything had a symbol. Why do this ceremony? I mean, why partake in Passover? In this Passover, so why the odd command of putting blood on the door? That's kind of gross. I mean, to us, it makes sense, but we're looking at it in hindsight. Imagine hearing it for the first time. Put blood on the door? Well, we're told in verse 12 why this was to be done. For, the Lord says, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. So this isn't just a one-time deal. God is beginning with them a new culture, a new nation, a new sort of... uh, um, what would you say, a new existence for them as a people that they hadn't known prior to this. This is your first month. This is January, as it were, from our perspective. It's brand new. We're starting right now. And as you do, here is the first thing you're going to do in that first month. You're going to celebrate your deliverance. Every single year, you're going to do it. And they did it through something called Passover. The word Passover is from the Hebrew Pesach, which comes from a verb that means to hop or to leap. And uh, it was used from a verb, they used it to refer to limping, because when you limp, you kind of hop. Isn't that right, Lisa? She's been Pesaching for quite a while. But uh, through faith in God's promise, they would, God's judgment would hop. It would, it would, it would pass over the person who had faith to believe that the blood was sufficient to atone or to, uh, to cause God to redeem, to redeem them. And actually, this feast was actually to begin a week-long celebration. It just wasn't a one-night deal, but it was a week-long celebration that was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And there was two feasts that were really sort of stuck together and it was often re- just referred to as the Passover or the Passover week Um, And so the unleavened bread came immediately on the heels of, of eating the Passover lamb. Verse 15 tells us this. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Leaven. 
This is uh, something we, we buy, you might say you, we buy it at Kroger, or we buy it, you know, we, we intentionally put it in our bread, and they did too. But for this particular week, they weren't to put anything in it, in their bread. They were to eat bread, or they were to eat their bread without leaven, because it represented, it came to represent not only their haste, but as the, the Bible went on, it also came to represent sin. Because you let a little sin in the loaf of your life, and it will spread. If you just give it just a little bit, it'll take over until it permeates the whole lump of our lives. Sin does that if we let it. Look down at verse uh, 26. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed in homage. Then the sons of Israel went and did so just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle, Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go. Worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go and bless me also." The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we will all be dead. Well, you're familiar with what happened next. You've seen the movie. <laughs> they left Egypt, God parted the sea, Israel crossed on dry land, Pharaoh's army chased them, God closed the sea on the army. Incidentally, the text doesn't say that Pharaoh died in the, in the, the sea, that's sort of a that's the one thing that the Yul Brenner movie got right. Remember Yul Brenner was standing there on the shore watching it happen. The rest is sort of off. But anyway, God took Israel to Mount Sinai right after that and there gave them the Ten Commandments. Interesting that God would take them to Sinai. Wasn't the goal the promised land? Why would a journey of two weeks ultimately take 40 years? Why, instead of going along the way of the Philistines, as the highway is called, the quick way, up to the Holy Land, why wouldn't God take them that way? Instead, he took them south, traditionally down to the tip of the Sinai Peninsula. If God was a travel agent, he seemed like a poor one, didn't he? That's because God knew that they needed something before they entered his will for their lives. Before they entered the Holy Land, they needed the Holy Bible. Now, I don't want to draw too much from this, but that is a principle that's also true in our lives. Before we go about God's will for our day, or certainly for our life, we need His Word. We need the Bible before we go living the will of God. How do we know the will of God? Without the Word of God. God took them to Mount Sinai first so that he could initiate his covenant with them, so that he could give the word of God to them 
so that they would know how to live in the promised land. The goal wasn't just land. The goal was a walk with God, wherever it was, whether it was in the promised land, whether it was in Egypt, whether it was be, would be in exile, whether it would be back in the land. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Israel has gone in and out of the land several times. And whenever they are brought back into the land, it's God's effort to draw them close in a relationship with them, which is interesting because they're back in the land now. And you look at the grand scheme of history, it's so fascinating to think. If God has operated with Israel as a nation in the past by taking them into the land, and then when they didn't walk with them, taking them out of the land, and then bringing them back into the land, and then when they rejected Christ, taking them out of the land. And now he's brought them back to the land again. It's just like God's setting things up for what's coming next. He's taken 70 years so far for Israel being a nation. Who knows how long it's going to take before God gets going again with Israel. Remember that God gave them the law before, or I should say after he redeemed them. That's also important for us to realize. But God gave them the law after he redeemed them. And again, this is important. God didn't say, look, here's my law. Do this and I'll bring you out of Egypt. He just redeemed them, and then he gave them his law. God gave the law to a nation that was already redeemed. It's that way with us. He doesn't say, look, obey my rules, and then, then I'll let you have a relationship with me. Instead, he says, he initiates the relationship. He saves us by his grace. And then he says, now, I'd like you to read the Word. I'd like, you to, I'd like you to live the Word. Not in order to get saved, not in order to stay saved, but because you are saved. I have redeemed you. Now, your response is to live a life of holiness to me. It's that way with us, and it was that way with Israel. The New Testament labors from, from the very beginning to connect this wonderful Old Testament event to Jesus Christ. Now keep your place here in Exodus because we'll come right back, but turn to Revelation chapter 5, all the way on the other side of the Bible. Revelation chapter 5. The New Testament labors to show from the very beginning that the Passover observance was filled with symbolism that points to Jesus. John the Baptist, remember, he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was pointing to Jesus Christ and saying, He is the Lamb. He is the one who is going to die. And any thinking Jew at that time would have heard John's words and immediately connected it to Passover, as we are meant to do as well. The blood on the doorpost saved the Israelites and the blood on the cross does the same for us. Revelation 5, the Bible is very careful to point out that the Lamb of the cross is also the Lamb of glory. Look down at verse 11. Revelation 5:11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne 
and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Isn't that a just amazing. That is amazing. Because John is leaving nobody out. There's nobody in this room that that excludes. There's nobody in Hollywood that that excludes. There's nobody in the political arena, thank God, that excludes. Everyone is going to say this. Everyone. Notice verse 13. Every created thing in heaven on earth and under the earth and on the sea are all going to say to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, is also the Lamb of glory. And the future we see in Revelation points to the fact that he will indeed receive the glory that he is due. So turn back to Exodus and look at the next chapter, Exodus 13. Exodus 13. And look at verse 4. It says, On this day in the month of Abib you are about to go forth. It shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, Amorite, Hivite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall observe this right in this month. Now, he calls it here the month of Abib, or Aviv in Hebrew. Aviv is not a particular month, but it is a, it is a time of year. For us, it's spring, but particularly for them, it was the spring time when the grain begins to ripen. Now, why in the world is that relevant? I mean, we know that the, the month of Nisan was their first month, but God also refers to it as the month of Aviv, or springtime when grain ripens. Why is this important? Well, it's a bit of a chronological gymnastics, you might say, but the month of Aviv, or springtime, is the time that they were to observe this rite in this month, verse 5. And this is important to note. It, it, there's a practical element to it, so just stick with me for a second because it's, it's sort of interesting. We have, you know, of course, our calendar goes by the sun. We have uh, solar months, January all the way through December. But the Hebrew calendar was a lunar calendar. In fact, the same word in Hebrew for new month means new moon. It was a, a lunar calendar, and it was every 29 and a half days. So it's about the same as our calendar, but you add several years together, and all of a sudden you weigh off. And so if you are celebrating Passover on the first month, the problem is with that 29 and a half days, after, over time, the springtime and Passover are going to start getting separated. 
And so what they would do about every three years, they would add an additional month, sort of like our leap, leap day, or leap, we call it leap year, we just add a day. But they would add a month so that their calendar would stay on track and so that, that the Passover was always celebrated in the spring because God wanted it to have a connection to the time of year when grain ripens. Why? Because God wanted there to be a connection between their redemption and their provision. That the God who gave them salvation was also the God that cared for their food. That there was a connection between salvation and provision. We see the same with us as Christians. Romans chapter 8, I think it's verse 32, says, Would not God who gave his own son to us also graciously give us all things? Paul wrote in Philippians, he said, My God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And Paul's talking about physical needs, not just spiritual needs. There is a connection between the God who saves us and the God who takes care of the mortgage, the God who buys the groceries, the God who provides for us. And the Lord didn't want the, his, his Hebrew people to miss that connection as well. So he says, when you celebrate it, celebrate it in the springtime when the grain ripens. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. He says, For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there will be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days. Nothing unleavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. You shall tell your son on that day, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth, for with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt." He's answering the question, why do we eat unleavened bread? Because it's a reminder, verse 9 tells us. It's a sign. It's a reminder on your hand and on your forehead, as it were, that the law of the Lord, so that the law of the Lord would be in your mouth. It's a reminder that your salvation from Egypt is a reminder that the law of the Lord be in your life. Your salvation is a reminder to obey God. Again, that hasn't changed for us, has it? Paul wrote in Romans, he said, In view of God's mercies, meaning your salvation, honor, your, honor God by your, uh, in view of God's mercies, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. They ate this unleavened bread as a reminder, as a reminder. All right, we've got one more place to look at. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as Paul takes this great chapter and applies it to us as believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Remember the, we all remember the blue laws where stores were still closed on Sundays. Well, in Israel, uh, Sabbath, Saturday is their Sabbath, obviously, and we, um, if you go to Israel today, the Sabbath is still observed, for the most part, sometimes. I mean, it, but for us, typically we go as tourists, and so the Sabbath kind of gets in the way, because everything, I mean, everything slows down. And uh, it's great when you're trying to drive on the roads, because there's no traffic, 
But boy, it, it gets in the way sometimes when you're like, you mean I have to wait till 8 o'clock to eat dinner? You mean I have to eat cold food that was made yesterday because you don't want to cook food today? You mean I have to not get on that elevator because it's going to stop at every floor? There are some things that, that are really interesting. In fact, Sabbath is a big deal, but Passover in Israel is a really big deal. It's like this national pause where everything stops. In fact, we were there one time, and I remember we tried to get pizza. Well, pizza's got leaven in it, remember? And the pizza guy said, man, you barely caught it. Five more minutes, and you couldn't have had pizza for a week. And I thought, man, I'm so glad we caught you. The gas stations also. You've got to try to struggle to find a gas station. And so anyway, there's all kinds of interesting inconveniences, but... They take it seriously, and it's basically a big spring cleaning. In fact, I've got a picture of this guy mopping the walls of the hotel. Look at this. This is Passover. I just happened to be sitting there, and this guy walked up with a bucket and started mopping the walls. We don't want any leaven on our walls. The whole place gets cleaned. Kathy and I saw a... a um, TV show that talked about how Jewish women would go into their kitchens and with blow torches, little blow torches, they would get into the back of their ovens and make sure that all of the leaven has gotten out. I mean, it's a fanatical desire to obey this law. Now, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Paul applies this. He says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. So Paul is using the illustration of Passover and, and the, the week of unleavened bread as an illustration of being diligent to get the sin out of your life. Imagine if we were as serious about removing sin from our lives as Jews are today and were back then about removing leaven from their lives. We just don't take it that seriously. We honestly, a lot of times, we'll just sort of take God's grace for granted, knowing that all we got to do, bow our heads, say a little prayer of confession, and we're good, for, good to go. But for them, they took it so seriously. And Paul is saying, use this as a metaphor. Clean out the old leaven, he says, so that, here's why, so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. You are unleavened. God sees you as holy. Why? Because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Christ died for our sins. We are holy in his sight. Therefore, clean out that leaven. Live in light of that. And he goes on to say that, verse 8. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, the, the feast of unleavened bread, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And the word there for celebrate literally could be translated, let us continually celebrate. It's something that never ends. Clean out the old leaven. This is more than mopping the walls. This isn't just making sure our homes are tidy. This isn't just making sure there's no leaven in the back of our ovens. 
This means that we go to work on our hearts. That in the mornings when we're sitting there before the Lord, or in the afternoons or evenings or whenever you spend the time with the Lord, that you're, you're asking God, what needs to be cleaned out? This is why, in fact, in the same book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, we won't turn there, but you're familiar with it, when Paul gives rules for the communion, and again, communion, what does that harken back to but the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal, in which the Lord Jesus says, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. Just as the Passover was a remembrance of their deliverance, the first Passover initiated the first covenant, so the last Passover that Jesus celebrated was the Lord's Supper that instituted the new covenant. In my blood, he said. But he said, do this in remembrance of me. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we are to partake not in an unworthy manner, but we are to examine ourselves. You get the blowtorch going on your heart. And if there's anything in there, it's not just a matter of simply confessing. I mean, that's all we need to do. But, but to take, take sin more seriously than we do in our lives. Not just because of the backlash that will happen, but to honor Christ, to honor Christ, that we want to live an unleavened life just as we are, in fact, unleavened in God's eyes. Um, and boy, that's work. That is constant work. This week, uh, Kathy and I noticed a huge lizard sunning on our brick wall outside. And this thing looked like an iguana. I mean, it, not quite that big, but it was, I bet it was as long as this microphone. I mean, it's a good seven, eight inch lizard. And it's one of those that, it's pretty thick. It's one that you wouldn't want to grab. It sort of looked like a horny toad with a tail. It was scaly and dark and, you know, really spooky looking. Anyway, Kathy says what every husband wants to hear. Will you kill that for me? <laughs> yes. Yes, husbands love to kill things for their wives. Lizards, mice, spiders, dogs next door. You want it dead, hon, you just tell me and it's gone. So I get my little air rifle. I, I, think, I was thinking, you know, a real, a real gun probably wouldn't be good on my brick wall. But my little air rifle would do the job. And this thing, I mean, it, it could hurt you if it, if it got you just right. And I was banking on it doing the job. And so, anyway, I aim at the lizard, and I hit that thing square in the back, and it, you know, it jumps off the wall, and problem solved. Next day, it's there again. <laughs> Lizards don't have great brains. So I'm thinking, okay, I'll take another shot at this thing. Boom, and I, and I missed, and it hit the brick right beside it, and the dumb lizard just sits there, doesn't even move. <laughs> it's like, really? Okay, we'll try it again. Pow, and knock it off again. And the third time, I think I really got it. I've been looking, and it hadn't been there the last couple of days. So either it's gotten smarter, or, or it's dead. But I mention that because sin is like that in our lives. It keeps crawling back. We've got to shoot at that lizard every single 
day. Don't think this because you shot it and it fell off the wall that the problem's solved. That thing's going to come crawling back. And that's what Paul is challenging us to do here. Clean out that old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Let's celebrate the feast. Let's celebrate the unleavened life, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, not with lives that have malice and wickedness, but with unleavened lives of sincerity and truth. And why do we do that? We do it because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. We do it out of gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done for us. One of the greatest motivations for living a holy life is not fear of God. Christ has removed that as a motivation. I mean, sure, he may discipline us, but there's no hell to face. Thank goodness. But the motivation to live a godly life is the motivation we're given here because Jesus died for us. We do it in honor of him. We do it to thank him. We do it in view of God's mercies, not in order to get God's mercies. We have them already. We do it as a way to say thank you. Every day we shoot the lizard. Every day. Jonathan Edwards said it like this. He said, resolved, never to give over, not in the least, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruption, however unsuccessful I may be. Never to give over, nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruption, however unsuccessful I may be. What a great word. Let's pray. Our Father, the victorious Christian life that we want is not a life without a battle. Victory presupposes a battle. It assumes that we have to shoot at the lizard. It assumes that that thing's going to come crawling back and we're going to have to deal with it every single day. Thank you for the picture of Passover, not only for its literal event that redeemed the Hebrews and began their great exodus and ultimately their journey to the promised land. But we're thankful also for what it ultimately represents in the Lamb of God, the Lamb of glory, who died on the cross, who rose again, who's coming again, and whom every knee will bow one day and give praise to the Lamb of God, our Savior Jesus. Father, we ask that if there are any here today that have yet to place their faith in Christ, that they would remove all good works that are propping up their hope, their feeble hope, and instead they would place their faith in the one who died for them, who gave them an unleavened status before God. Father, help us to live lives that are clean, and when we don't, may we confess and with all genuineness continue to press on, continue as Jonathan Edwards said, never to slacken our fight, however unsuccessful we may be. We're grateful to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Leviticus, next time.